We'll read our text from Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're going to consider the first three and a half verses. Uh, this study in Acts has been an interesting one. It's, and I just would like to, to take us through some, some uh, run up before we get to these verses. Um, Acts is not a book that is doctrinal in a way that the epistles are. But there are doctrines in the book of Acts that that are included in its narrative. And we glean those, we get those as we work through. Acts is primarily a, a history book, a historical account. Uh, and it's a historical account, as the name indicates, of the acts of the church. Or as if you'll remember when we began this study, we said the acts of our risen Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit indwelled church. This is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after he had ascended through his church. Though Acts is a history book, it's not a history book that just brings us bare facts that only inform us of what happened. Acts certainly does inform us of historical events, but, but more than that, we learn how through, through God's providence, the church has been organized, the church has been shaped and ordered and these facts from the book of Acts reveal to us the priorities of the first century Christian church. And thereby, they should set the priorities for the church today and in every day until the Lord returns. Those things which were important in the forming and the shaping of the church are still important. And I would like to, for just a moment, remind you how we have seen historical narrative teach us. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, and you can turn there if you want to follow along, but I'm not going to read. You can just remember that there were signs and wonders that came in Acts chapter 2. The cloven tongues of fire coming down and resting on each person. A sound like a mighty rushing wind speaking in tongues so that it was understood by every man in his own language. But these signs and wonders that came were not the foundational things of the church. Even with all those signs and wonders, Peter preached. He didn't just say, well, Look at all what has happened today. There's no need to have a sermon. As much as some people would like to hear that, that didn't get said by Peter and it won't be said by me. Uh, Peter preached and Peter preached Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And we read in Acts 2, when they heard this, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. It was the preaching of the word of God that was foundational and that was instrumental. And Peter commanded them to repent and to believe in Jesus. When we read this historical narrative, these facts teach us that the foundation for the Christian church is Christ and Christ 
crucified, risen, and coming again. That's still true today. We learned that from the historical narrative of Acts 2. And then we move to Acts 8, and now we'll kind of take several things that happened here all in a row. Remember, Philip, Philip went down to Samaria and brought the gospel to Samaria. And then afterward, Philip met an Ethiopian, not a Samaritan, but an Ethiopian, and, and helped him in his chariot. He helped him to understand the scripture. <coughs> remember a little later, Peter came down to Joppa. And if you'll remember, Joppa was a very, um, was a very Romanish type of city. And Peter was there where he raised Dorca, where he preached. And then from Joppa, Peter was sent by the Holy Spirit and, and collected by some people who were sent by Cornelius that he might go there to these Gentiles and preach the gospel. So we have Philip in Samaria, an Ethiopian eunuch. We have uh, Peter in Joppa and then Peter in Caesarea with Cornelius. All these different places, all these different cultural settings, all these different nationalities, all these different circumstances and situations. And we see that the gospel message was preached the same in every case. There was no adjustment to fit a different people. There was no adjustment so that the gospel would be more palatable to a different culture. We learn from these facts that we must not adjust or alter or otherwise compromise the gospel, even with different groups of people in different places and in different circumstances, the gospel of Jesus Christ remains the same. Now today we come to Acts 13 and we read of the first missionaries sent, Barnabas and Saul. And we have before us a historical account but as we read this historical account, we read with a view toward how the church should engage in missions today. What should this look like? Some of you have been in churches where missions were a big focus. Some of you have heard the word missional. We're a missional church. The word missional dates back over a hundred years, but it became very popular. It became sort of a, a buzzword in evangelicalism over the past 20 or so years. And the word, as it began, was a helpful adjective. But that word has evolved in the minds of many so that the missional nature of the church has in many places become nothing more than the church being active in the community. Many have the idea that a missional church, a missional church sends aid workers to areas in need of food or water or medical assistance. And as the word missional has evolved, so too has the understanding of what a missionary is. I have personally seen missionary sending 
that was nothing more than a doctor or a dentist going to a country, maybe a dentist going to a country where there's particularly poor teeth. I've, I've heard missionary sending agencies talk about sending a missionary to be a veterinarian to a place that has sick horses. I've even heard of elderly ladies being sent as missionaries to a foreign land to teach the women there to sew. These endeavors, doctors going to help, dentists going to help, veterinarians going to help, ladies going to teach sewing, these endeavors may be good humanitarian acts. But these and other involvements which may be good and may be good for Christians to partake in, today we will see that they are not missionary work. The church should not become embroiled in humanitarian efforts. The church is not commissioned to bring clean water or antibiotics to the world. The church is to worship the one true and living God and to preach the gospel, making disciples of Christ who will become worshipers of the one true and living God. As we read this text, we will read historical fact but we also will learn how to be biblically missional. I already know it's not in my notes, so I'm going to say it now. Some of you are appalled at what I've already said. Let me tell you, I know of one man who is a missionary, who is an engineer. But he also was an engineer and a pastor at his church before he was sent as a missionary. So stay with me. We're going to see what biblical missions looks like. Let's read, finally, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pick up the first part of verse 4. <clears throat> now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work which I, to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. We're going to just kind of dot, dot, dot right there. They went, and we'll pick that up next week. This is the word of God. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father in heaven, as we, as we come before you, we ask your blessing on us. As we hear your word preach, help us to be hearers, good 
hearers in whom the word produces fruit. Help us to love your word and to, to receive it and allow it to change us, to change our thoughts and our opinions, to, to change our ideas and our actions about the work of the church. Help us to more closely align with your word, with the great commission that you have given us. Remind us today of the great missionary work of our Savior who left his home to come to this foreign land, to come to this hostile land, preaching repentance and faith for salvation and then going to the cross Dying there to be the sacrifice for our sin. Help us today to hear the voice of Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. As we've already pointed out in the past weeks, Acts 12, the, the 12th chapter is, is like a hinge point or a turning point in the book. Things have changed. Things have been changing and they have changed. And Acts 12 marks some serious change that the scope of the gospel was limited to the Jews. But now we find that the scope of the gospel has come to all people without distinction. The center for the gospel, the hub, if you will, has been Jerusalem. But now the center, the hub is shifted to the city of Antioch. The primary spokesperson the, the main apostle, if you will, has been Peter. But that too is changing. Peter will be known as the apostle to the circumcision. But Saul will be the main figure for the spread of the gospel to the world. Listen to what John Calvin said in introducing Acts chapter 13. What follows is a history not only to be remembered, but also very profitable to be known how Paul was appointed the teacher of the Gentiles for his calling was, as it were, a key whereby God opened to us the kingdom of heaven. Calvin calls him Paul. I called him Saul. We'll see in this sermon why we're calling him by both names. This statement of Calvin should reflect the heart of every Gentile Christian. We are the great beneficiaries of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles and the growth of the church throughout the world. Paul's calling, he said, as it were, was as it were a key whereby God opened to us the kingdom of heaven. And this is what our Lord spoke about when he said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And we've seen that in our study through Acts and now to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we read in verse one, not about Jerusalem, but about Antioch. Now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there, Barnabas. Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We have listed for us these who were prophets and teachers. 
And we need to ask what is meant, what is the meaning of these words. First, the word prophet. One sense of the word prophet, I would say the Old Testament sense of the word prophet, is that of telling of future things. There are many things that were foretold in the scripture and prophets of God are the instruments by which he brought those prophecies to the people. And we have them today in our Bibles. So there is a sense in which prophet or prophecy in the Old Testament is the telling of future things. But then there's the New Testament sense or the New Testament meaning of the word, the meaning that we intend today when we say someone has a gift of prophecy. This is one who speaks the truth, not one who foretells, but one who foretells, one who foretells the truth. The gift of prophecy is often seen today in God's preachers who stand and proclaim his truth clearly and plainly. They are prophets of God, not telling the future, but telling what God has said. Old Testament prophets foretell since the closing of the canon, prophets forth tell the truth. And this latter meaning is likely what is intended here by Luke in this text. That these men have what John Calvin called a singular grace of the spirit to teach. So Calvin's saying this is not two groups of people, prophets in one group and teachers in the other. But these are Prophet teachers, prophet teachers, preaching the truth, teaching the truth. I would, as we consider this, that this prophets and teachers, not as two groups, but as one. These men who are prophets and teachers in one singular grace, as Calvin said it, I would remind you that we have the same question, the same discussion in Ephesians 4, when it speaks of Christ giving the gift of pastors and teachers to the church or Christ giving the gift of pastor teachers to the church. We won't get into that discussion, but it also arises there in Ephesians 4 as well. So in this verse, while listing the leaders at the church in Antioch, we note that they are pastors and teachers. And we note in the second place, the order, the order of their listing. Barnabas is listed here first. And then we have the other three. And then Saul is listed last. We've already pointed out that up to this point, every time these two men, Barnabas and Saul, are referred to, they are referred to as Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas first, Saul last. It's even more interesting to see that in this list, Barnabas is listed first, and then we have the others, and then Saul comes at the very end. But that's about to change. That changes here in this chapter. I'd like to point out a couple of changes. If you'll remember back in chapter 9 when we just studied the conversion of Saul, Saul the persecutor of the church, the Christ hater, was apprehended by Christ on the road to Damascus. And many of us 
falsely remembered that it was on the road to Damascus that Paul was, that Saul was saved. And there God changed his sinful, evil name of Saul to the Christian name of Paul. And that's what we remembered. And if you'll remember, we remembered wrongly. We misremembered. We have noted since our study in chapter nine, where Saul became a Christian. And we have looked at the actions of Saul, the Christian, and we have seen that he is still referred to in scripture as Saul. Saul's preaching, Saul's teaching, Saul's interactions with the apostles as a Christian. He's still Saul. Now he's brother Saul. Now he is Saul, the believer in Jesus Christ. But now that Saul, the Christian, is being called out to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he will no longer be called Saul, which is a very Jewish name, a fine name, by the way. I, I was speaking tongue in cheek when I said it was an evil, evil, sinful name. Saul is a fine name. But it's a very Jewish name that he has been going by. Now he will be called Paul, likely a name that he's had all along, but it's a more Greek name. And this change occurs if you look at chapter 13, verse 9, very unceremoniously, right in the middle of the narrative, verse 9, we read, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him. And from that point on, he's Paul. So we need to understand that this is one change that we find in Acts 13. Saul is now going to be referred to as Paul. The second change that comes in Acts 13 is found in verse 13. So in nine, he starts to be known as Paul. And then in verse 13, we read, Paul and his companions. No longer is it Barnabas and Saul. No longer is Saul the end of the list. Now it is Paul and his companions. Paul is first in the list. And then if you look in verse 42, we read of Paul and Barnabas. Later we'll read of Paul and Silas. It will be Paul and from here on out. And I don't know of any significance of this other than that it's an observation from Scripture. And that at the very least shows us that, that we should observe it. And that it shows us this man's humility and willingness to take a back seat and to be the Saul of Barnabas and Saul. To be the Saul of Barnabas and these other men and Saul. His willingness to take a back seat until the time that God puts him forward as a leader. Let's continue in verse two. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul. See, even the Holy Spirit says that in that order. Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called him. Let us notice in the third place, the missionary sending agency, the missionary sending agency. We live in a day, as many of you are aware, when missionaries are sent 
often by a missions sending agency rather than a church. Sent by a missions sending agency that is not a church or affiliated with a church. Even the largest Christian denomination, their mission board in many ways disconnects from the local church as far as oversight and authority over missionaries. We see here through the New Testament and throughout the New Testament that these sending agencies in the Bible are churches. This should be clear to us. The church knows the men who will be sent. The church evaluates the gifts of the men who will be sent. The church commissions them to that work. And then the church holds them accountable. The church, scripture tells us, is the pillar and support of the truth. And part of that work of being the pillar and support of the truth is to be the sender of missionaries. It was convenient in this instance. This was before the closing of the canon of scripture. While God was communicating directly to them. And he revealed through the Holy Spirit that he was setting aside Barnabas and Saul to this work. There's no question about, I wonder, that they didn't leave that, that, that and say, I wonder if it's Barnabas and Saul. It was very clear. And that's very convenient. But we today must consider a man's gifts. We must consider and then seek to develop those gifts. And then men are chosen by the common suffrage of the church. That means we vote. That's how we choose deacons. That's how we choose elders. That's how we should send missionaries. We are still trying to recognize who God is calling. It's not as though we pick our favorite guys. We're trying to recognize who God is calling. And as the church, we affirm that calling with our vote. Verse 2 is very clear to us that Barnabas and Saul are called by the Spirit. They're not self-called. They're not church-called. They're called by the Spirit. But verse 3 is very clear that they are sent by the church. The church seeking God's will, God's men for this work. So the missionary sending agency was the church and still should be the church today. Parachurch organizations should not send missionaries. Denominations should not send missionaries and plant churches. Seminaries are not to send missionaries and plant churches. Associations should not Send missionaries and plant churches and call preachers. Churches plant churches. Churches ordain pastors and deacons. And churches send missionaries. Let us consider, I believe we're on point five, those who were sent. 
those who were sent. In our day, we hear of people from various walks of life. I've already brought up some people that I have known that were sent to the mission field from different walks of life, and they're sent as missionaries, doctors, businessmen, retired couples. I have not known personally, but I have heard reliable reports that even single young women have been sent to foreign lands to be missionaries. And this, as I mentioned, speaks to the broad definition of what a missionary even is. I have known missionaries who simply had a medical or dental practice. I have known of missionaries who had a quote, quote unquote missionaries who had a medical or dental practice in an area where there was no church, where there was no preacher, where there was no place for their soul to be fed. And it turned out to be detrimental to the spiritual health of that man and his family. I've known of people being sent on the missionary on the mission field to be missionaries and their task was this open a coffee shop and sell coffee and you'll be serving Jesus now some of these people I have known personally and I would count them as friends and, and I would say that the best of these people when sent to the mission field, quote unquote, to be missionaries, they do take the opportunity to speak to their neighbor, or in the case of a doctor or a dentist, to speak to a patient, or if you're running a coffee shop, to speak to a customer about Jesus and to share the gospel with them. But my question for you is, is that mission work? Or is that what every Christian ought to be doing. We're not all missionaries, but we all ought to be speaking to those around us about Christ. This is just what every Christian ought to be doing wherever they live. Here in the scripture, the missionaries who were sent were preachers. Now it says here those prophet teachers from verse one. We have a list of five and two of them were sent Barnabas and Saul. And this is what we observe in the historical record. And this should be the practice of the church today. When we send a missionary, we need to send a preacher. It's not in my notes, but we have a friend who moved here from a foreign land. And there quote unquote missionaries were sent a clown company and he said I went backstage to talk to those people and I said what are you doing we do not need clowns here we need preachers to preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ and church that's what a missionary should be we need to send preachers to preach unapologetically Clearly communicating Christ and Him crucified. Prophets, teachers, these preachers were sent. The work of the missionary is largely the same as the work of a pastor in a local church here. We don't send them to do a different job. 
We send them to do there what we are doing here. And if they're not the same, somebody needs to change. It needs to change what they're doing or what we're doing or both. The work of the missionary is largely the same work, preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God, ministering. And by the way, when we say ministering in church, it's not just some general service to people. We're talking about ministry of the word of God. Ministering. It's not just clean water and medical aid. Are there times that we need to see about clean water? Yeah. As a pastor of a church during a natural disaster, I labor to bring clean water and food and things to people. That wasn't the primary work. I'm just doing that so that they'll be around so they can come and hear the gospel. That's the primary work. Ministering is the in the biblical sense is ministry of the word. And the qualifications for a missionary, are they less than the qualifications for a pastor? Well, we don't have to put up with them. We just send them away. Are the qualifications less? No, they're the same. They're the same qualifications. Why should we send a man to preach the gospel in another place who we would not have preached the gospel here at home? Someone pointed out that, that we might have a tendency to think we should send the least competent preachers and teachers. We should send the least desirable to be missionaries. Or maybe we should send the one who's available. You know, they, they've got the schedule that fits. It seems clear in this text that they sent the prophet teachers, the pastors, who are not just any, but I would make a strong argument that this was the cream of the crop. This was the best of the best. Who are we going to send to do that mission's work? Let's take the best. Barnabas and Saul. And we'll send them. And we're told in this previous verse, in verse one, this list of pastor teachers. And, and the point of the list is this, that even though missionaries are sent, we don't say we're sending all our pastors overseas. <laughs> I just thought some people might like that idea. Just send all the pastors overseas. They're not sending these pastors to another land and neglecting the local church. We're given this list. That we might know there are still pastors here. There are still elders to take care of the souls of the people, the Christians who are there. So this is not neglecting one thing for another. It's both. And that's why we have this list. As Barnabas and Saul are sent away, don't worry about the church. The church will not be left without an under shepherd. There was a plurality of men who remained to lead the church. Verse three, when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, the church prayed. Now, now this is certainly before they were sent away. So they prayed before they were sent away. And then that was it. They didn't pray for me more. They forgot about it. Is that right? 
No. Follow the text. They prayed for them. They stayed in contact. They cared for them. They laid hands on them and they were sent away. And then verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice that you have to. They were sent by the church. They were sent by the spirit. Well, which is it? Yes, both. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. I wanted to just get these two words in here. They went. Look, if you will, I have been unable to find the verse that indicates that Barnabas and Saul asked for this appointment. Guys, we were just thinking it would be cool if we could take a trip. They didn't ask to be appointed. Now, now we're not going to say that they opposed it, that they were that they were dragged into it. But there's no indication here. John Stott says there's no indication that they volunteered. That doesn't eliminate room for volunteering. The scripture does instruct us that if a man desires the office of pastor, then he desires a good work. Which reminds me, I just think of several of you in this room right now who desire the office of pastor. Let me remind you, you desire a good work. Let me say it a different way. You desire a good work. It's not a vacation. It's not a golf course thing. It's work. But a man's desire then is seen as sort of a prerequisite that the desire is required. And surely Barnabas and Saul had a desire to do this work, to go on these missionary journeys. But the point here is that it's not that men should be forced into Christian service. The point is that the calling came from the, from the church. It's affirmed by the church comes from the Holy Spirit and it's affirmed by the church. It's, let me say it this way, it's affirmed or denied by the church. Wow. We don't think about that. Do we? This truth about the calling and sending of a missionary being affirmed or denied by the church was demonstrated for me recently when a friend who is a pastor in one of our sister churches shared a story from the life of Samuel Pierce. Pierce was a Baptist pastor in England in the late 1700s. And Pierce wanted to be sent as a missionary to India. He wanted to go to India. He had a friend who was already there. He wanted to join him. He wanted to go and he petitioned his church to be sent to India as a missionary. What a noble thing to come to your church and say, I want to leave the comfort here and I want to go there. And he had a great desire and felt as though God were calling him to this work. And the church said no. And Pierce, with such a great desire, thought, well, the church missed it. I'm going to appeal to the association of churches. I'll go there and I'll make my case and those men can, can help me set the church straight. And the church said, well, if you're gonna go, we're gonna send some representatives too. 
So some men from the church came and Samuel Pierce presented his case that, that he just felt a desire, a burden, and, and just felt as though God was calling him to go to India to be a missionary. And then the men from the church presented their case. And this is what Samuel Pierce wrote in a letter to his wife after hearing the decision of the association. Pierce says, I am disappointed, but not dismayed. I ever wish to make my Savior's will my own. I am more satisfied than ever I expected I should be with a negative upon my earnest desire. Because the business has been so concluded that I think the mind of Christ has been obtained. My dear brethren here have treated the the affair with as much seriousness and affections as I could possibly desire. What's he saying? I had this desire. As a matter of fact, it still seems to be that he has this desire. But now he says, I have heard the voice of Christ. I have found the will of Christ by hearing from the will of the church and in his case, through the will of the association. What Pierce didn't say is what we may hear men say today. I know that God has called me to do this and it doesn't matter what you say. I'm going anyway. He sought the will of God through the church and then through the association in his appeal. How far from so many today who arrogantly believe that they can determine God's secret will without the input of the church. And then they push forward, running roughshod over the means that God has given for such decisions, the church. Church, we learn from these few verses that it's the church who is the missionary sending organization. The missionary sender is the church. Those sent to the mission field should be preachers ministering the word of God. And the affirmation of a man's calling comes through the suffrage of the church. The first century church spoken of in the pages of Acts was founded on and focused on the spread of the gospel, planting of churches and sending of missionaries. And all the acts of the church were gospel saturated and Christ centered. The same should be true of the church today. May God help us to do the work of missions in accord with his structure and his plan until our Lord returns. Father, we thank you for this text of scripture. We thank you for the instruction that we gain. Your word is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. God, please forgive us where we have held wrong ideas, wrong beliefs, where we have been perhaps participating in unbiblical ways, trying to do your work without doing it your way. 
And Lord, help us here at Waco Family Baptist Church to grow in our understanding and then in our doing of your will, your way. We pray these things for the furtherance of the gospel, for the growth of the kingdom, for the glory of our Lord. Amen.